0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keene, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Joining us now, William Dudley. He is of Berkeley, he is of Goldman Sachs, and of course, the former president of the New York Federal Reserve. And we're thrilled he could join us. And he writes presciently on labor this morning. Bill, I I don't want to go into the details of President Biden's 72 points on the power of corporations and the consolidation of corporations and the weakness of labor. You do address it this morning in your note. But I want to go back to an important article you wrote six years ago. What kind of jobs have been created Bill Dudley, how did we get here with declining labor share? Uh, it's
1: not really uh, clear exactly why labor share has declined so much over the last uh, <clears throat> you know, couple of decades. You know, presumably, it's because corporations have more power. Uh, you know, antitrust policy has been uh, less aggressive uh, in, t- in dealing with competitive practices. And I think labor's po- power from a unionization perspective is also uh, lessened. But uh, you know, it's also a question of how tight is the labor market. Uh, through much of the last economic expansion, there was an excess supply of labor. We only got to close to full employment at the very end of the last economic expansion, then the pandemic hit. So I think the key is going to be, can the Fed drive the economy to full employment? And if the economy is at full employment, then I would expect labor to do better and pick up a bigger share of, of, of income.
0: The primal scream of this document and the political energy that supports it, so that supports President Biden, seems to be about an, a blanket of technology over this generation. Do we underestimate the technological effects on our labor economy, on our American economy?
1: Well, I think there is no question that the digitalization of the U.S. economy has had pretty powerful effects on on the return on capital and in the, the return on labor. Uh, I, you know, I think the ability of people to search now uh, through the labor market and find people to employ is vastly different than it was. You know, when people used uh, help wanted advertising to attract uh, workers to, to employ them.
2: Bill, there's a belief that maybe. Labour has started to get a little bit more power as we work through this reopening. You've written today in your column, is the labour market too loose or is it tight? Is it loose or tight? And Bill, your answer is both. Can you walk me through the thinking, Bill, in your latest piece?
1: So it's, it's loose in the sense that if you look at the unemployment rate, the unemployment rate is still elevated to, compared to where we were in February 2020 when the unemployment rate was 3.5%. Right now it's 5.9%. It's uh, loose when you look at the number of people who are actually employed. We're seven million jobs short of where we were in February 2020. But if you look at it in terms of how, my, how many job openings there are, number of job openings is at an all-time record. We're up. We have 9 million, 9.2 million of open jobs. Businesses have a lot of jobs to fill. They can't find workers. You actually see, hear hear about that anecdotally in, in the Federal Reserve's beige book report, where they talk about how businesses literally can't find workers to. <coughs> hire to do their work. And some businesses actually are cutting back their hours of operation because they can't find enough workers uh, to to keep their output up.
3: So, Bill, when we talk about, though, the power of workers here, when you go back uh, decades prior, there was an argument to be made here that it was the mobility of workers that also gave them a lot of power and that with the consolidation of industries, with the the decline of labor unions, uh, that sort of leverage is just not there the way it used to be. Is it possible to bring that back? Is it possible for that to be done at the behest of government policy?
1: I think it'll be difficult because mobility has declined. The willingness of people to move from one, you know, geographic location in the U.S. to another is much lower today than it was, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And part of that's the aging of the population. As people, you know, are, are older, they're, they're more attached to where uh, they've lived uh, historically. So I think I think it's really about the Fed. It's really about the Fed getting the economy to full employment. If the Fed can get the economy to full employment, make the labor market truly really tight then workers will have to, uh, businesses will have to pay up for workers and workers will get a bigger share of the the pie.
2: Bill, let's talk about the Fed just briefly. You've talked a lot about the risk, the balance of risks around a Federal Reserve that once they do lift off, that trajectory won't be as shallow as the trajectory we saw in the previous cycle, a Fed that you were a part of. Do you still feel that way?
1: Yeah, because they basically said that we're not going to even begin to raise short term rates until three conditions are met. The economy has to be at their view of full employment. We have to hit 2 percent inflation and they have to be confident that inflation is going to go above 2 percent in the future. That's very, very late to actually begin the tightening process in terms of lifting off in terms of short term interest rates. Uh, Before they used to try to hit, uh, you know, they they lifted off early with the idea of hitting 2 percent inflation, full employment, And a neutral federal funds rate all at the same time. We're not going to do that this time.
2: Bill Dudley, important final point. And Bill, good to hear from you, as always. That piece is out on the Bloomberg Terminal this morning and on Bloomberg.com. Is the labor market loose or tight? The answer it's both. By Bill Dudley, the former Federal Reserve Bank of New York president, Tom.
0: David Riley of Blue Bay Asset Management agrees. He says, Grin and Barrett, it. it is a growth economy. David, what does the slowdown gloom crew get wrong? Well, I think they get wrong the
4: extent of momentum that we have in the US and I think also the global economy right now. And you know, we still do have uh, continuing substantial fiscal uh, support. And I think think that we're going to get more going forward as well coming out of Washington. And, you know, we're getting things like the recovery fund will start to be dispersed towards the end of this year and into uh, 2022 uh, within uh, Europe. And of course, with the vaccine rollout, Um, as well as supporting reopening. So I'm, I'm pretty confident. I have got a high conviction, even though the market's kind of challenging that conviction in terms of how the bond market's performing, that, you know, we do have strong growth for this year. We'll have above trend for growth for next year. I think where the market can reasonably... Um, or you know those contrary can can reasonably challenge and sort of say yeah, but once we get past that, then we're going back into a sort of secular stagnation of you know excess savings, low growth, low inflation, and the Fed will never be able to get. Uh, rates um, higher, it's going to end up getting trapped in the way that I think the ECB has done. I'm, I'm not as pessimistic as as, as that. So, um, And I think right now the market is underpricing um, uh, the Fed. So, you know, I, I, I still think that bond yields are going to end uh, meaningfully higher by the end of this year. But you know, yeah, I'm taking some pain. I'm, I'm having to uh, uh, grin and bear that right now.
2: David, earlier on, we caught up with BMO, talked about the reaction function of this market, how a market responds to incoming economic data. He made the point it's not what you expect. might be a little bit more counterintuitive in the future. that upside surprises on CPI will actually lead to lower yields at the long end, 10s, 30s. Are you pushing back against that?
4: Well, I think in the near term that is because the uh, market has interpreted the last meeting of the Fed as as this you know hawkish uh, pivot and basically decided that the Fed has blinked in terms of its average inflation targeting um, regime. So, if you get higher inflation in the near term, that is makes the Fed more likely to 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 hike rates. But as, as I was saying before, people are sort of now debating this kind of secular stagnation um, over, over the medium term. But I think they're wrong on that. Both I think that, you know, as the data comes through, we will see higher and stickier um, inflation as well as uh, stronger growth. But also actually that I don't think the Fed has become uh, meaningfully more um, hawkish. And so at some point I do actually expect Um, uh, the the curve to steepen back again and to get back onto that more kind of reflationary um, uh, trade. Tom and I
2: hate the when questions. When will that happen? But David, I do think it's important when you think we'll have sufficient information to challenge the current consensus. When do you think that will happen?
4: Uh, I I think we're going to be looking at sort of September, October uh, time. I mean, you, you know, what's important is in addition to the inflation numbers is also, of course, what's happening in terms of um, the labour market. And although we had a pretty strong payrolls headline number, the actual unemployment rate, um, you know, somewhat surprisingly ticked up. Now, our own forecast suggests that unemployment is going to be approaching 4% by the end of this year. Uh, So, I think, you know, when we get to sort of uh, October, um, we'd have had a number of uh, payroll reports, including, you know, the September uh, payrolls, which will start to reflect some of the runoff in terms of uh, the extended unemployment insurance, um, you know, kids returning to school, uh, you know, mums getting more access to uh, the labour market as well. So some of those sort of labour supply constraints may start to dissipate as well.
3: So David, so I, as we sort of try to assess this growth story, this growth scare, whatever we want to uh, sort of call it here, uh, can you maybe walk us through the divergence that we've seen lately between? what's been going on with regards to sovereign debt and what's been going on with regards to corporate credit? Because they seem to now be uncoupling maybe just a little bit.
4: Yeah, I think it's a good point. That I mean, one aspect of... You know what we've been seeing of late is that while you know we've seen the volatility in the rates market, we've seen the equity markets starting to um, respond uh, to that, and thinking you know the the, the bond markets telling us that you know growth mm. is uh, slowing and potentially meaningful. Uh, credit's actually held up pretty well now, in part credit doesn't need. Sort of really strong growth and and corporate earnings growth in order to you know be still a relatively right. attractive from a from a from a carry uh, perspective, um, but I do think also the credit market right now is sort of saying well. You know, yeah, okay, maybe growth is you know maybe may moderating, but that's yeah. you know it's it's not waving any kind of red or even amber flags in my opinion.
0: David, my observation is you're not focused. I mean, that's all I can see now, <laughs> John. This is just simple. Riley is focused on one thing, and it's what England is going to do against Italy. Let's get to it. How do they do this, John Faro and David Riley? Does England have to come out strong? It's the when question right now. When does England do it? Do they come out strong in the first hand? half John or do they have to be patient and come out strong in the second half I think
2: a lot of it comes down to one player for England David I'm sure you agree Raheem Sterling has yep. just been a standout performer player been. of yep. the tournament for England if he turns up yep. there could be a bit of trouble for Italy He's just David- been absolutely
4: fantastic yeah, I, I, actually think, um, I actually think Italy overall are the actual better team, but England do have home advantage. So um, I am hopeful that that will be enough to kind of get us over the line. But as Jonathan said, yeah, I mean, Raheem Sterling uh, running at uh, the uh, Italian centre-backs, I think could cause them some problems, uh, particularly if they touch him.
2: And of course, which Italy turns up? The one against Belgium oh, or the one against... Austria,
4: I'm more interested in They've London. they won
2: 33 matches the city in of a London, row, John. City of London, unbeaten 30-plus games. The City of London, Tom, Monday morning. How does that work, David? What have you said to your team? Are you turning around to them and saying, look, I don't expect you to be in early on Monday morning after the big game? What are the expectations from the staff in the city?
4: Uh... I, well, I've told them I won't, don't expect me to be Oh, a, you've David. told oh, them no. that. <laughs> what about them, David? Uh, <laughs> no, they've got to be banging there. Right? <laughs> I mean, someone's got to work. I mean, don't forget, I'm, I'm a lot older, so I've, I've got you to sleep. Every time I I do need my I, I do need my sleep so um, yeah I mean hopefully um, you know we won't there there be a, a little bit of uh, you know positivity and uh, euphoria maybe a sort of cheeky long sterling we trade we should
2: we should send the camera out to bank station just outside of bank station Tom yeah on Monday morning yeah. I'm telling you tumbleweed
0: yeah. it's, it, all it, the
2: it, way through to lunchtime it's called yeah.
0: bunk right. Bunk.
2: yeah, Bunk.
0: Yeah. What I noticed here is David Riley just, you know, he was not focused until we brought this up, John, and he's just full on right now.
2: I would agree. David in the zone. (laughs) David Riley of Blue Bay Asset Management, chief investment strategist. TK, Monday morning. It's going to be dead.
0: David Blanchflower, a few decades ago definitively restructured our labor thinking with his book, The Wage Curve. And what we all know is our wage curve as a society has been shattered in the recent decades. He is at Dartmouth College. David uh, uh, David Blanchflower joins us uh, this morning. Danny, I look at where we are, and you're the first name that I came up with. And what I want to talk about more than anything is the primal scream nature of these 72-point executive's or Who is screaming about consolidation in America?
5: Well, I I, I guess the way you would think of it now is that workers have been hurting. Um, Non-workers have been hurting. They've been hit by a serious pandemic, um, and it's had a big impact on the world. But if this sits on the end of many decades of poor wage growth uh, and the balance of power between workers and firms has shifted quite considerably compared to where it was. So, this is a sort of, pro- I read it and I've read it very quickly in the last 20 minutes. Sure. This is a pro- kind of primal scream to try and redress the balance of power between <laughs> workers and firms. Now, I think the commentary we just had is important. Market response is very little because the question is does it have any teeth? Is it merely wishful thinking? Well, so when I read it, that this is trying to think about um, some of the mm-hmm. stories about big firms, about Google, about about Facebook, and so on. But this is, a, this is a scream, in a right,
0: sense, but David,
5: to think about that balance being, being, being checked Whether is, it can do that is unclear.
0: What is so important to me, Professor, is the idea from you, or liberals like Paul Krugman, or conservatives as well, uh, the late Ed Lazier out at Stanford, is the overwhelming theme of that document is technology is here, and we are using right. and adapting to technology every uh, every day. Within the, the economics of monopsony, can we take the dead weight Loss of technology and can basically can we put the genie back in the bottle?
5: Well, well, probably not. Um, I mean, the teeth is the big story, but I, but I do think that in some sense that uh, I like to think of it this way: <clears throat> um, firms have the ability to pay uh, higher wages. They've seen no real need to do that, uh, and they haven't shared. They haven't shared those wages. Uh, And those, uh, in a sense, the the profits that they've made. So this is a scream to try and do something about that. I mean, look at real wages. I mean, I've written about it for 30 years. Still, even with the growth that we've seen, real wages today are still below what they were in the 1970s. So this is about trying to think about that coming out of the White House, coming out of C.C. Rouse, who cares about these kinds of questions. The issue is, can you can you change this balance? There appear to be sensible things there in terms of, let's think about this occupational licensing. Let's think about ways in which we can get prices down. But that in, a, in a sense, Anno Domini can just continues. And in a sense, I read it as, we would like for these things to happen. We would like to try and sort of stop the world from rolling. Yeah. But there's little or nothing in it. I mean, there is going to be a White House Competition Council. Um, and... and but that's true. But well, Danny, let's not talk about now. that word. And it forgive just, me for jumping so in, big.
2: because I think that word is so important. The knee-jerk reaction from Conservatives this morning, I think, would be to say, I'm from the government and I'm here to help run. Right. This is a problem. The government wants to set prices, mm-hmm. all those kind of things. But I hear competition and the lack thereof. And Tom, I think, rightly mentioned the late great Alan Kruger and some of the work cool. he did on non-compete clauses and cool. the labour market. And this is about trying to reintroduce competition where there hasn't been enough competition. Can you just sit there? That's your world, the labor market, something like non-competes and a problem that that has caused.
0: Well,
5: this is about the balance of power. Um, When the balance of power sits with firms, firms can put put in occupational licenses and they differ by state. Um, And in the UK, they can do these things called zero-hour contracts. That's what happens when the bargaining power shifts strongly towards towards firms. Um, If you can somehow or other redress that, take the occupational licenses away, that increases the powers of workers. That's what this document is about. But it but the first thing you read it, uh, John, is it doesn't have any teeth. It doesn't have how are we going to do this? Uh, Yeah, you can say, you know, it would be a good idea to lower drug prices. It would be a good idea to let people have have refunds. And in some sense, what we'll see, and it's something I've argued about a lot, workers' ability to bargain these things becomes greater as the economy moves towards full employment. And so we're seeing these adjustments going on. And in the last six or seven months, we see increasing power of workers trying to get, you know, trying to deal with the bottlenecks that we see. So I think this is a sort of an opening salvo. Yeah. Um, Alan Krueger's work is really important in that in that area. Firms can impose rules w- when when their bargaining position is strong. We will see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. But I I, I just did, think did, you know the. Uh, did, I just- did, I just- this is an opening salvo, it seems yeah, to me. It, but
3: the professor, do but professor, when we talk about some of the market forces that have sort of pushed right. a, a little bit more, uh, given the workers a little bit more bargaining power here, the idea here that the administration now wants to nudge that even further, not necessarily a surprise, but the idea that when you start talking about some of these right-to-work issues and some of these yes. licensing issues yes. here, this is now a, a major shift, if he's able to get it through uh, and able to sort of enforce these things. Right. This would be a major shift uh, in how, in the U.S. economy, in the U.S. labor market.
5: I I think it would be. And there are signs around the world that that this shift is underway. Um, Two examples. In the UK, we've seen rising unionization rates. And actually, in the United States, in the last data that we have, union rates, union density rates, that's the proportion of workers in union, has actually risen. And why is that? It's because actually in the last uh, years or so, um, non-union jobs have actually declined. So I think there is some evidence in the last couple of years that there is a move away. I mean, the right to work laws are, are, are laws that can be imposed when there's plenty of workers around. So I think you're right. Um, the, the balance between workers and firms seems to be changing a bit. I mean, this is a this is a really important, and interesting document. It suggests that, you know, we're going to see a push on the front of let's in- increase the power of workers but whether you can impose that is another thing. The
2: problem is Danny that's the left wing interpretation of this and I mentioned a little bit earlier what the conservative criticism would be. F- we're trying to we're trying to reduce the friction of corporations. Yes. Yes. At the same time I don't want to introduce more friction okay. on the labor side with unions and you know that's a political point.
5: Uh, of course I know that's a political point. Um but yeah, that 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 that's true. I'm just suggesting that there are there are trends that are moving partly because that's what's happening out there in the world. Yeah. I mean, we've seen those things happening. But yeah, John, I, I mean, I don't think it's the it's the left-wing view. I think it's that the reality is the reality is where we are. How that's going to change will really depend upon how tight the labour market is.
2: Yeah, and we and can it- both agree we need more competition. Right. Danny, you and I could talk forever. I'll give you a call later. We'll carry this on and a little bit more. Danny Blanchflower of Dartmouth College.
0: Pat with us Johns Hopkins. We're thrilled he could join us this morning. The mystery for me as someone vaccinated, Professor, is the idea that if I choose to be unvaccinated, how sick is sick when I get the Delta variant? What's the level of sick we should expect? Well, the data is,
6: is really rolling in now that um, the Delta variant, is causing disease primarily in unvaccinated populations. And the disease that it's showing seems to be a bit more severe than the disease we saw in similar age groups at the beginning of the pandemic. So if you're unvaccinated, The risk from Delta variant is greater of infection, and there's also going to be a slightly greater increase of severe disease from infection. So there's nothing good about being unvaccinated when you think about the Delta variant.
0: Where are we on the vaccination process right now? I follow the statistics. I saw something age over 12 fully vaccinated, 50x percent as well. Are you pleased with the rate of vaccination?
6: Um, every vaccination is a good thing. I would love to see these vaccination rates get much higher than they were, than they are right now. Um, we've reached a stage where many of the people who are, uh, vaccinated now. Obviously, they're protected from infection. They're protected from severe disease. We haven't reached those levels that really give us a population-based benefit from vaccination yet. That's that herd immunity thing that you hear about all the time. Uh, It doesn't mean that the vaccine doesn't work against you individually. The vaccination helps protect you. But at some level, we get that added benefit that the virus is just so difficult to, to, to circulate in the population because of vaccination that even the unvaccinated um, get a benefit from that. We're not close to that level. And as a research scientist, that's what I really like to set as a, as a, as a standard uh, vaccination goal.
3: Yeah, doctor, a lot of talk now about sort of what the next step is for those folks <clears throat> who have uh, been fully vaccinated. Pfizer, of course, uh, coming out yesterday and talking about uh, the idea of a booster shot, the CDC saying that, well, maybe not quite yet here. Where do we stand?
6: Well, all the data so far from the U.S. looks like vaccination, particularly vaccination with the mRNA-based vaccines, is protecting against Delta variant. So I like the fact that Pfizer has gone forward with the clinical trial to show what a booster will do. Um, I think that's important data to have. I don't see it as an eminent thing uh, in terms of a guidance for the U.S. population. But this virus moves quickly, variants are emerging fast. And I think the Pfizer move is good in terms of preparing for the future. If we get a variant that's even more deadly than Delta, then a booster may be an important thing to to, to consider. And having Pfizer um, completed the clinical trials for that (coughs) is going to be a good thing in terms of helping us be prepared for that.
2: Professor, it's good to hear from you, sir. It's good to catch up. We've got some breaking news we need to run to. Andrew Pekosch there, Johns Hopkins, Bloomberg School
0: of Public Health.